For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. As the writer to the Hebrews concludes his letter, he makes sure to remind his readers of all the important things they need to be doing. Things that are hard to do when we are being mistreated. Let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Keep On Loving. So as I've said, we have come to the end of the book of Hebrews in chapter uh, 13. And the writer, most likely the Apostle Paul, can't say for sure, is winding down in typical New Testament fashion in this, that he concludes with a call to action, or he has pastoral exhortations of ethical commands or directives. What I'm trying to say is, first, 11 chapters of doctrine, theology, right thinking and instruction, because from right thinking always comes right behavior. The book of Romans was like that. 11 chapters of, of theology, instruction, teaching, not really a call to do anything. And then when you get to chapter 12, and it's like, in light of all of this, now we are going to behave in the following ways. And so, you know, mom was right. Garbage in, garbage out. Wisdom in, wisdom out. And so he's following the pattern. Uh, in their case, what did they need to be instructed in? The theology, the, the, the superiorness of the, uh, the second covenant, the new covenant. These were Jews having a hard time because they added Jesus to the mix. And, and things became very difficult under the Roman Empire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It was easier to be a Jew. Since they were already Jews, they were thinking, let's go back to the first covenant. So we've had 11 chapters on teaching why the second covenant replaces the obsolete and archaic first covenant. And now it's a call to action. That began last chapter, chapter 12, when he said, now come on, let's run the race. In light of everything we know about who Jesus is, what his nature, what he's done, what, uh, the access we have to God's throne. Let us therefore live holy lives. And we're fi finding out that to live a holy life is really practical stuff. It, it's like getting along with people. <laughs> as long as, as far as it depends on you, you should live at peace with everybody and having good attitudes. He's saying, watch out for any bitterness from your hardship that can spring up and defile those around you. And so good attitudes and getting along with people uh, and, and keeping our passions in check. Who would have ever thought that that's what God meant by be holy? You know, it's just practical stuff. And, and he's told them with a little bit of the fear of the Lord in chapter 12. And by the way, the Lord is coming. It's called the day of the Lord or it's called Judgment Day, where he's going to shake not only the earth, but the solar system as well. And, and in fact, do away with them and create a new heavens and a new earth. So therefore, let us make sure that we, uh, we walk in a way that pleases God. And so now, chapter 13, he's in his final descent. 
All right, so uh, he's going to land the plane, as it were, in 25 verses to go to say goodbye. And sure enough, the directives are flying at us like some kind of shotgun blast of uh, buckshot. You know, do this, do that, don't do that, do this, remember this, don't forget about that. You know, just because last words are important. You know, he knows he, he's signing off, and so he's firing away a, a, a at them. And so here in chapter 13, it starts out really um, four verses, four directives. Perfect. Let's take a look at them. Here they are on the screen for you. One, keep on loving each other as brothers. Two, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have uh, entertained angels without knowing it. Three, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you were being mistreated as well. Four, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So that's going to be our text. You know, I'm always tempted as a Calvary Chapel pastor uh, to just try to conquer the whole chapter, you know, but there's so much going on in these four verses. Why, why rush on? Let's see what the Lord has for us. And there, there's beautiful insights here. Now, it doesn't surprise me in these four verses that there are four uh, commands of ethical behavior, uh, as it were. And it doesn't surprise me that they start, all the whole chapter, there's going to be about 12 to 15 exhortations. It doesn't surprise me that the first four are about love. <laughs> uh, first of all, because they're going through hard times, and when you're going through hard times, what happens? Uh, you have a tendency to be impatient and rude and insensitive because when the heat comes up, you know our hearts can get hard. So he knows where they're at. And he says, I don't want the hostile environment that you're facing, the Roman Empire and Christianity, to cause you to be unloving people. That can happen when you're struggling and when you're hurting and when you're being slapped around and marginalized and insulted. The last thing really naturally is to want to love. So he's going to tell these people that the the preeminence of love in the Christian life, and of course he starts with love, right? God is love. Pretty important stuff, love. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, what does it say? You know, I don't care if you can speak all the languages in the world. If you're fluent in the, in the language of heaven, if you give all, all your money away, you sacrifice your life. If you have so much faith uh, that you could speak to a mountain and that mountain would move, but you don't have love, you're a zero. Well, of course he's going to talk about the importance of love because without it, all good things are just nullified. And so it doesn't surprise me that in some way the entire chapter is connected to the expression of love. And we're going to see that kind of lived out. The four points are going to be, number one, show brotherly love to one another. Keep doing that. Uh, number two, extend warm hospitality to those coming in from the outside. Three, have compassion for those who are suffering among you. And number four, strive for moral purity. 
It's under stress, you know, we have a tendency to act out or to loosen up those morals because uh, things have heated up on the outside and we just kind of give way. He says, no, don't do that, all right? So let's take a look at that first directive, the command to keep on loving one another. And with it comes the description of the kind of love he's talking about. So first of all, keep on loving each other as brothers and, of course, sisters, right? So it's just amazing. First of all, it's good news is that loving one another as the family of God comes natural and they're doing it. He says, but you got to keep on doing it, right? So that's important. It's a call to continue. One writer said, you know, it's never valuable to have a Christian virtue today if it's not going to be with you tomorrow. So it doesn't matter how, how obedient you've been today. First of all, it's Sunday. Everybody behaves well on Sunday, right? I've been in church for crying out loud, right? I, you know, we're talking about tomorrow and Monday morning when your boss is, is demanding something and being insensitive and rude and not appreciating you. Are you going to have the same attitude you had this morning on worship? That's what we're talking about. He's saying, hey, you have this, but you better keep on doing it. Because what good is it? You, you know, today I was a devoted Christian. Today I loved the Lord. Uh, today I was kind to my wife. How about tomorrow? <laughs> so he's saying, I know you love each other. In fact, it comes quite natural to you. First Thessalonians chapter 4 says, I, Paul, writing to the Thessalonians... I have no need to write to you about loving one another. God has taught you how to do that. You see, it's endemic to conversion that we love one another. He's just saying, keep on doing. Some uh, synonyms for that would be keep at it, persist, persevere, abide, uphold, promote, guard, pursue, forge ahead, press on in this kind of love. You must continue. You need each other. Why? Why is he saying keep on loving each other? Because as it gets tougher and tougher and harder and harder and more challenging to live the Christian life, you need one another. Now, interesting um, example here from the world of redwood trees. They grow 350 feet tall and their roots go five feet deep only. How do they stay upright through the storms being 350 feet tall? They grow their roots 100 feet out and they intertwine and fuse together as a growth. And so when the winds come, the rains and the floods, they stay strong and standing. You see... The exhortation to remain in the grove of sibling family love is for their benefit. If you want to get blown away, then start to to mess around with those uh, root systems. We want this to be a, a family love. So keep intertwining and find safety with each other in the church. Now, uh, I love it. He says, keep at it, but keep, and now he's going to keep remembering the kind of love. It's a brotherly bond. Now, thank you for that uh, picture, by the way. The unique 
bond of siblings. Now, there's nothing like siblings. When it's right, it's right. There's just nothing like it. Uh, Barb and I were coming back from the conference on the plane, and siblings, a girl and a brother, <laughs> she's 11, he's 10, and grandma. They went to Disneyland. You know, you hear the whole story. <laughs> the mouse ears kind of gave it away. <laughs> the little girl and that boy, they loved each other. They just couldn't stop hugging and playing and laughing. And, 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 and the sister grabbed the brother's head. I thought she was going to pop his head off. She just grabbed it and squeezed it into her face like this. And I was looking at them and I was thinking, that's a squeeze that says we are friends for life. There's nothing that's going to come between this. Ideally, ideally, that's the way it is. I mean, think about it. From the same womb, shared DNA, a common experience there, yeah, similar features. I've got a couple pictures of what I'm talking about. Are they siblings or what? <laughs> Come on. They check through your grocery line. You don't ask, are you guys brothers and sisters? <laughs> Come on. This is another picture. You know, there's just nothing like your brother's foot in your face. <laughs> you know, just having the time of it. Just siblings. They're, 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 the roots are fusing together, and there's nothing in the whole world that's going to tear them apart. You just come on and all together, please. Aw. I mean, you look at that. And just you can keep that up there just to keep the, the embers aglow, you know. <laughs> Uh, listen, when the Expositor's Bible Commentary put it this way, those who are linked in the common bond of having been saved by the death of Jesus cannot help but have warm feelings for one another. Spiritual siblings bring a dynamic of eternalness to this whole sibling, brotherly love, and it's just something else. We're born of the same womb. You listen to a testimony, and everybody's testimony is so different, but we're all going, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now remember that because God, the Holy Spirit, gave us birth to our hearts. We were born. We started to recognize there's a new person in here, born of the Holy Spirit. And every time you're talking about it, the person next to you who's been born again as well is is in agreement and being affirmed. And we, 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 sh we share the same rescue, the same father, the same close call. Whoop, we almost went to hell. That'll bond someone together. Phew. And the same destiny to heaven forever together. Those are roots, man, that you call that fused right there. Eternal bond. Man, he's saying, you're brothers forever. You say, our father. That's what Jesus said. Why did he use that uh, pronoun? He's good at grammar. He said, when you pray, say, us. Living stones put together the body of Christ. The eye, the nose, the ear. One body, many members connected Love each other. 
as brothers. And that's why you can go to India where there's a language barrier, walk into a room filled with guys I can't even communicate with, but we have our father's eyes and the countenance and the fragrance of, 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 of belonging to him and the family. You can smell it. You can see it. You can feel it. You can know it. And there they are, and the hugs like a long-lost friend closer to me than relatives who don't know the Lord, who I share biological DNA with. Close. Love each other as brothers. That expresses itself. Carrying one another's burdens, encouraging one another, speaking well of each other, sticking up for each other. I just remember the big brother love uh, in, in our household. You mess with the younger siblings, that big brother thing comes out. You don't talk like that about my little brother or my little sister. You don't treat my little sister like that. Because there's a brotherly, sisterly love that protects and sees the best and, and roots for that person, wants that person to win. That's what he's saying. Oh, come on, you guys. If we're called to, to bake cakes for our enemies and bring them drinks if they're thirsty to our enemies who hate us and persecute us and use us, how much more these getting over these petty little differences. Well, she gave me that look today, you know, and then you talk an hour about that look, whatever that look meant. It is to your glory to overlook an offense. It's to your glory. God applauds when you, instead of biting the hook and taking the bait and making a big deal out of something that's kind of petty, needs to be ignored for the sake of unity and love and the, the good of the roots, the strengthening of the roots, not the pulling the way of it. Overlooking that kind of stuff, being gracious and forgiving and patient, that's, that's what he's calling. And he said, yeah, it's not just slapping people on the back if they're out of order and, and you see, you are your brother's keeper. You say, hey, man, I see something. You can have tough conversations with your brother as only a brother can. That's what he's asking us to do. Helpful, supportive, and sacrificial ways. I was at UCSF 12 years ago, most of you know, struggling with a 30% chance of surviving Hodgkin's lymphoma that went to needing a bone marrow transplant. I got to the place at UCSF when I couldn't produce my own blood, so I needed transfusions to live on. Blood supplies were low at UCSF, so they let us go below the standard lines where you could die because they didn't have enough blood except me. I was the only one on the floor that had reserves. I had reserves of platelets, which was very rare. I had an abundance of platelets, abundance of red blood cells, abundance of everything. And a nurse asked me, why do you have so much blood in your reserves? And I said, I have a lot of brothers and sisters. <laughs> the church was going, and I see some of them here today taking vans and going to UCSF and giving the platelets to give your platelets is a big deal. Your blood has to come out of both of your sides. They spin your platelets out and give it back. It's a couple hours. 
A lot of people just don't, can't do it in the first place. Why do you have so much blood? Why are you so blessed? Because the roots, the brotherly love, got a lot of brothers and sisters. And, you know, not to belabor the point, but there are some impediments to this beautiful union, right? I mean, sometimes it's that, and sometimes it's this. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> All right? He's bad. He's worse, <laughs> probably. <laughs> There's another one. <laughs> Oh, I remember those days. Now, listen. There's challenges. They didn't choose to be brothers, nor did we, right? So you're sitting next to somebody who's so different from you, and yet you're going to share eternity together. You come from different languages, different uh, cultures and different social strata and different positions. You've got somebody who's an employer, who's got a lot of money, and Andy's got a lot of letters after his name, and you've got somebody who just came in from under a bridge, an alcoholic with not a penny in his name, to his name. And he's loving the Lord, and he's in the church, and he's going to live and reign with Christ forever and wear a crown, just like the other guy. And they're seated next to each other, and they're hugging each other and praying for each other. I mean, but sometimes those things rub us the wrong way. It's like, I can't relate to that. Or, you know, somebody told me, God saves the most weirdest people. <laughs> and I showed him in the scriptures. First Corinthians chapter one. God goes for the low of the barrel. No offense. <laughs> he goes for the foolish things in the world, the weak things in this life. And so... Yeah, so we've got to watch out for that. Not to mention we've got our own sinful selfishness to deal with. You know, it's not always easy. C.S. Lewis has a cure for the ailment of when we get irritated with one another or not liking each other. C.S. Lewis said, do not waste time bothering yourself about whether or not you love others as Christ commanded. Just act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. It works every single time. Try it in your marriages. Try it. Try it. Well, I don't want to be the first one to do it. See, that's the problem. <laughs> you need to get over that whole thing. I don't want to be the first one to do it and just do it. Act as if that person, like that, that whole dating thing, you know, and you'll find that your feelings will come along, act your way, they call it into feeling. And so just a beautiful thing. Let me close this first point with this. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, but a brother, but a brother is born for adversity. What is he saying? Yeah, you got friends and they'll love you all the time. But a brother, when you're down and out and the whole world doesn't like you anymore and you've burned all your bridges and spent all the money on all the wrong things because you've never had any sense with money <laughs> and you knock on that door, the brother says, you got me. You always have 
that's the brotherly kind of love. Now that I can't breathe, we'll go on <laughs> to the second point. Oh, I just love that kind of stuff. So, yeah, brotherly love, not just for the inner circle Christians uh, that you know well. How about those new faces in the crowd? Uh, verse 2, a call to hospitality. And here it is, kind of awkward in the English. The new NIV edition after 2011 has changed it to hospitality because it really means hospitality because really, if you start thinking, well, what does entertain strangers mean? I, I mean, it means, does it mean go downtown, uh, you know, to the square, find somebody sitting at the bus stop and say, hey, you want to go to a movie and dinner? You know, I mean, that's how you would entertain a stranger, right? But no, uh, it's nothing like that, as you can imagine. And what a curious little verse. Yeah, I always used to read that. What does that mean? Wow. Well, let's talk about that. So there's a command. And if we're honest, there's a motivation to actually be hospitable. That's a motivator. Okay, there's nothing wrong with being motivated to do good works. God, the Lord is always talking about reward, reward, reward. Paul as well. I mean, I think it's your motivation ought to be in check. And you, you better be guided by the Holy Spirit in all of this. But there is kind of a motivating factor about this. So the word to entertain strangers is a compound word. It means there are two Greek words smushed together as one. That's what a compound word is. And the first word means to love. And the second word means guest friendship. That's what it means. And so mostly it's... Um, talking about hospitality in our English, but hospitality, not quite right. As we talk this out, I think you'll understand what I'm trying to say. Now, first of all, the stranger part is not a somebody like you think of, like, like I would think of some guy walking down the street as a stranger, and, and we think, quite frankly, in negative terms, terms of that word, stranger. He, this is brotherly love context. We're talking about the church. So we're talking about people you don't know yet. Your pre-friends, all right? The friends that come in, they're Christian. They want to get established, but you don't know them yet. You haven't built, they're not part of your inner circle. How are you going to treat them? You're going to treat them warmly, kindly, welcoming. How can I serve you? Showing interest in them. Hey, where are you from? Where do you live? What do you do? Uh, you know, I, uh, you're into real estate? Hey, this, that guy just poured himself a cup of coffee. He's into real estate. You, you know, connecting, accommodating. What do you need? You know, it's such a beautiful thing. It's an attitude in the Bible before it's a verb. In fact, it's required of pastors in 1 Timothy chapter 3. On the checklist, when you're interviewing for a pastor, is he hospitable? It means to love to host, and it doesn't mean in your home so much. It did then more than today. It means when they're in your presence and they're in your sphere, you're making them feel at ease. You're making them feel welcome. How can I serve you? How, how can I help adjust you into this new environment? Because that's my obligation, because I've been welcomed by God. God took me in. God clothed me when I was a stranger. How does that song go? Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, 
Him to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. I was a stranger to God's promises, God's people, God's purity, God's holiness, everything. I was a total outcast, but God took this stranger in. And from that grace, which all Christian virtues must flow from your own experience of forgiveness, you forgive. Of being treated with hospitality, you show it. Because the God who gave all of those things to you now requires you to reach out in the same way. And if you're not responding from your own experience, you can't be warm and friendly and kind. You know, one writer said uh, a, a, a symptom, an unfriendly, inhospitable person is a symptom of a heart that has not experienced the welcoming love of God. And so we see this is so important. Uh, you know, you know, we were at a restaurant recently the waitress was terrible. Oh, my word. She was miserable. And, and she was mad that we were there. You know, she just came over. It's like, oh, no, another couple. You'll probably order a salad or whatever it is. I mean, there was an attitude. And now we, we just looked at each other like, sorry for coming in and spending money here. You know, and oh, just and then you have the waiters that come in with a, with the gift of hospitality and say, "Hey, how's everybody going? I'm doing here." You know, let me tell you about this, and and you know they're so accommodating, and and they always say, "Absolutely." You know, you say, "Hey, can I get some ketchup?" Absolutely, like you know, and you're saying, you know, we, you know, my my wife didn't really order this, and can would it be absolutely, you know. Uh, it's just the word that says you are like an angel from heaven and we're going to take care of you. Oh, I, this is not in my notes. Surprise. But um, <laughs> in Japan, oh, my word, hospitality, kings of the earth. You just, I mean, it starts at the airport. Everybody running around you, serving you like you're some kind of celebrity. You know, I tell the story. I was in a shop, a Levi's shop. And I was, uh, I need to be big and tall in Japan. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, it's not that funny. <laughs> I'm not telling you the rest of the story. <laughs> so I'm searching through. You know, the, the two pairs of jeans near my size. And he goes, the guy comes over. He says, oh, I think we have it. I think, I think we have it across town at the other store. He says, oh, hold on. And he calls the manager. This is all Japanese. Calls the guy. Hey, moshi moshi. Ah, hey, I've got a customer here. He's a little on the big side. <laughs> He's one of those Americans, you know. Hey, do you got a pair of jeans over there? La, 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 la. He goes, comes running on me. One minute. Hold on. We're going to get you the jeans. In comes, 20 minutes later, the, guy, the manager from the other store. And he has them folded like this. And he comes up and bows and presents them to me. <laughs> and he's saying, it, it means I've done a terrible rudeness. For what? For bringing <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, it could have been much faster. You know, <laughs> you've kept me waiting. <laughs> Oh, he says, people of God, when they come into your churches, could you show that you care about them? You're excited, so you don't know who they are. You don't know whole the, their whole story. 
get it. Find out. You have a moral obligation. It's an ethical command of the people of God to be warm and friendly and outgoing and accommodating. That's what he's talking about. Whether you ever end up with, whether they ever end up at your dining room table or not. It's this. It's that. That's important. A cold church, a dead church. Run the other way. You get the cold vibe? Run for your life. Now about this curious tidbit of you might not want to forget this business of hospitality because some of you have been entertaining angels without realizing it. What in the world does that mean? Well, let's start first with the angels, all right? Angels are spirit beings. They don't have flesh and blood like us, but they can appear like us. And sometimes when they do, we know about it because there are terms like lightning, right? So that kind of gives it away that we're dealing with something (laughs) more than just a human being. The guys at the tomb, right? There were two men rolled away the stone. They're sitting on the stone, you know, and they're gleaming like the sun. All right, Uh, that's not angels unawares. (laughs) That's angels, oh, we're aware. (laughs) But what Abraham encountered, and he's talking to Jews, so they all went to Sunday shul, is the word. In, In Yiddish, the word for school is shul. So they all went to their little, they learned the story of Genesis 18. Abraham, and here's the point. He saw somebody in need, three travelers. Hey, new faces in town. And he says, hey, uh, can I get you something to eat? Why don't you stay at my place, right? So he invited them in. It turns out to be the Lord and two angels. The Lord Jesus Christ, before he was in a body, he is God the Son. He made appearances and he made one to Abraham without Abraham even knowing that God was in the mix and angels on the other end of his good intentions and his good deed came this blessing from heaven that he didn't have a clue about till he did it. Also, we're getting to the point. Genesis 19, Lot, Abraham's nephew, did the same thing. He saw two guys hanging out at town square of Sodom. He went up to the guys and said, hey, guys, Uh, This is Sodom. You guys don't want to be hanging out at night here. It's dangerous. Come to my place. You'll be safe. My wife will cook you some supper. You know, I'm just reaching out to you. I care about you. You know, he doesn't have a clue. What what is he doing? He's just being a nice Christian believing guy. And, And disguised in the good deed is a blessing for him. And he thinks... I'm going to rescue you. Oh, no, God's like, hey, I got you on this. You actually brought into your home somebody who's going to rescue you. You see? But you were unaware of that. You didn't know you are just trying to do a good deed. He's saying, endemic in all good deeds done in the name of Jesus, you will find a heavenly, unforeseen blessing. You think you're doing this thing. Hey, I'm just being nice. But that guy turns out to be an employer who's going to hire your brother. You know, or that guy turns out to, 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 to know somebody who's going to be an important part of uh, resolving some issue in your life. There's always a blessing in disguise 
when we're serving the Lord and stepping out for him, and that's kind of the, the spiritual application that is going on here. You, you know, I think the writer is aware of what Jesus said in Matthew 25. Let's read it together, because this is the point. So he's telling a story. He's saying, when I return to the earth at my second coming, the survivors of the great tribulation, I will judge them. And I'm going to put the unbelievers on the left and the believers like sheep on the right. Sheep and goats, that's what he called them. And he said, let me, let me tell you a story about that. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Uh, I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Ah, next verse, verse three. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger? and invite you in, or needed clothes, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, or go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, brothers and sisterly love, you did for me, surprise. Surprise everybody, but it was actually me. And I took it personally. You didn't know that. Now, where they, uh, is he always talking that, that there's always angels amongst us looking like us and probably they're sent to guard us and, and, and serve us? Hebrews 1.14 says they're sent to minister and serve those who inherit salvation. That would be us. So they're around. They worship with us, 1 Corinthians 11. They're here. The point isn't, Make sure you do good deeds and show this kind of warm love because there's something in it for you. It's just simply a reminder that with every good deed that we do, God has, some, he's a debtor to no one. He says, unbeknownst to you, there's a hidden blessing that is going to come to you as you stepped out and you gave and you, and, and you sacrificed a little that God was able to come in there unbeknownst to you and bless you beyond what you were thinking in this small little thing. And now the third one goes with it, really, because you've got the prison thing. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. Now, Prisoners back in the ancient times depended for their food and clothing 100% on friends and family. You would starve to death if no one brought you the food, right? So there were Christians among them already arrested, some of their leaders. Timothy was in prison. At the time, we'll hear about that coming up. People didn't want to go and associate with them because once you associated with them, they could charge you with the same kinds of crimes, so you would put yourself in harm's way to do it. So he's, he's saying, you know what the cure to that, not wanting to help somebody because it might cost you or backfire? You know what the cure is? He's saying, just imagine it were you. 
Just imagine the guy who's hurting is your brother or your dad or someone you really love. What, what if that woman over there is crying? She's dabbing her eyes. What if that was your mom? Oh, things would be different, right? Things would be different because you would feel an identification with that person. You'd want somebody. Is somebody helping my mom over there? She's crying. See, you have to, to tell yourself because our default mechanism in our sinful human hearts is self. So we always need to be exercising faith and reminding ourselves, hey, what, I passed somebody who's crying by the cross. What if that was my brother? What if that was my son? You know, I told you about, or told first service anyway, about the guy in the, in the subway we met. He's down there singing his songs. There was something that drew us to him, New York City. Lost. And he started talking about his dad as a pastor. And he grew up in the church. And, and my heart went out to him. And my pockets were emptied. And I was making him laugh and putting him in a headlock. And make, uh, just, uh, you know, that's my version of saying I like you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be friends. <laughs> you know, uh, he liked it. We were joking around and laughing. Because well, I was thinking, what if that was my boy? What if that was my son? I would want somebody to walk by him and love him and give him money and remind him of God's love and reach out instead of just walking by him. What if that was my boy? I raised him in the church. And, and I pictured his parents crying and, 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 and uh, praying for him. But I... If you don't do the work, you're going to walk right past all of these opportunities because you don't know them. I don't know them. But if you start thinking, you don't do this with everybody, drive yourself crazy. <laughs> you don't have the resources to do, but there's Holy Spirit moments where you, if you're walking in the Spirit where you walk by that guy and he goes, oh, what a fool, there he is. And that guy got blessed and touched and loved on because I was thinking, what if it was my family, right? That's what that means. Fourth call here. We've talked about brotherly love within the church and how that kind of shows itself in warm hospitality to outsiders coming in um, and also uh, the compassionate love for those who are suffering. And now the faithful love shown to our spouses and within uh, our marriages. Now, pretty basic stuff here. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So... First of all, what does it mean, the marriage bed kept pure? Well, you keep reading. This is what it means. It means the way to keep your marriage bed pure is to keep your vows and be faithful to your spouse. That's simply all that means. It means that marriage was under attack in those days. And, and let me tell you why this verse was important to them. By the way, the word honor is the same word in Greek for preciousness. 
Marriage should be seen as something precious, instituted by God and highly esteemed. And you ought to take your vows seriously because having intimacy outside of those parameters, those God-given parameters, brings painful things in God's judgment, right? And he lists two of the ways you could go outside the marriage bed, as it is called. Now, marriage was under attack, and they had three problems and three reasons why he needed to, to exhort them in marriage. Uh, number one, they had false teachers who came into the church. They never called themselves false teachers. These guys were called ascetics. But they didn't say they were ascetics. They said they loved the Lord, and they're called to the ministry. Uh, looking back, they got the name ascetics. And what they taught the Christians was that all pleasure is bad. You, you, asceticism is harsh treatment of the body. And so 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tears these guys from limb to limb. And he says, certain liars and false teachers have crept into the church telling you to, quote, abstain from marriage and certain foods. So it wasn't just sexual relations with your spouse that they said, no, even in marriage, it's not holy. You do better. And so they told people, don't bother getting married. And if you're married, abstain. That was their teaching. So he's saying, oh no, the marriage bed is pure. It's of God. Keep your vows there. That's important. Number two, other false teachers slipped into the church. They were called Gnostics from the Greek word that means knowledge. And so they were saying, we're Christians, we're pastors. They didn't call themselves false teachers who were Gnostics. They came into the church and said, hey, I've got a teaching. We've been enlightened. So they're called Gnostics, right? So they said, we've, been, we've got a revelation, Christians, that the body is temporary. The spirit is what counts. So you're free to do whatever you want in your body. So if that's excessive drinking or partying or sexual immorality, it doesn't count because the body's going to be gone. It's the spirit that counts. And so what they did was they changed, and Jude tore them from limb to limb. Jude said they changed the grace of God into a license for immorality and denied Jesus Christ as the only sovereign and Lord. And so that was a problem. So one of them was saying uh, marriage is unspiritual, and the other group was saying marriage is unnecessary. Now you've got the third problem, is, is that they lived in a pagan world that was filled with immorality. And so they had their own sin natures, and they were tempted to go outside the marriage bed. And then the two ways you could do that listed, there's probably more, <laughs> adultery and sexual immorality. He's saying, keep your vows because you live in a world that doesn't and is always going to be enticing you to jump the guardrails of the safety and the blessedness and the purity of what God has prepared for husbands and wives. Now, he gives adultery, of course, is cheating on your spouse. We know that. And then that other word is that ugly word in the Greek, pornos, where we get an even uglier word, right? And, and, and he's saying that God is not some killjoy, some meanie up in the sky who says, you could be having a lot of fun, but I'm not into that. 
So I'm going to rob you of all this joy. No. What does Deuteronomy say? He says, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and keep his commands uh, for you are good. Deuteronomy 10.13. For your good that it would be go well with you. God knows us. He created us. He has a design. He says, this design will work. It will fulfill you. It will meet your most profound needs. It will be a thing of joy and beauty and preciousness. But I don't want you to go outside the design. A good thing used in the wrong way is a bad thing. And God says, that will be judged in a redemptive, loving way. He allows the, the bad choices and the consequences of our foolishness uh, to be the judgment, to, to show us don't do those things. And so you have broken hearts, you have guilty feelings, you have empty relationships, uh, you have unwanted pregnancies, that, and then you terminate that pregnancy. It's a human heart that's beating. If you terminate a human heart, there's another word for that. There's all kinds of things that come about as God's judgment diseases that can kill you. So he's saying, you know, keep with in honor this beautiful institution called marriage. Keep your vows purely. Find that expression in marriage alone because everything outside of it will bring hurtful consequences called God's judgment. But what do you, you know, sometimes he's like, here's the flame. Don't touch it. The toddler wants to touch the flame. And you know, one time dad doesn't get there in time and boom, he touches the flame. Ow! He doesn't want to touch the flame anymore. And sometimes God's judgment is to let you touch the flame have the common sense to put together flame, touching, owie. Not, not good. And so he says, you guys, in this fallen world, you have to be faithful. Be faithful. Let's close by talking about what everybody's talking about with marriage. Because as it was under attack in that day, it is in our day as well. But I think I'm going to say a few things that are going to surprise you. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, disagreed with Jesus. Uh, Jesus. Here's Jesus' words about marriage. Jesus said to the Pharisees, At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. For this reason making them male and female, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife and the two shall become one. It's pretty simple, right? That's his definition. They disagreed with that and they said, we're going to legalize and affirm that which uh, something against what Jesus has said. Now, uh, there are three ways of looking at this, real quick. Here they are. The behavior, homosexuality. The issue, same-sex marriage. The person. The behavior, listen, the Huffington Post, very interesting. I chose one scripture, but there are seven that just clearly show you 
whether you're in the Old, New, Old Testament or the Gospels or the New Testament, clearly the behavior is called sin. There's no way around it. And I just picked the most famous one. And if that's all you need, you just need Romans 1. Okay, Romans 1 just says whether you're a male or a female, same sex between the same, same sex is just called sin, period. Just, just, it's done. It's right there. You can't argue with it. Number two, the issue, same-sex marriage. It's not really a marriage, but they're calling it same-sex marriage. Matthew 19 is the verse I just read that Jesus defined. You know, I, the creator made them male, female. Because they're male and female, he brought them together to become one. That's pretty much done. Here's what I want to share with you. It's the person. The person. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 let me set it up for you. First, Paul says there's a whole bunch of behavior in the world that just kind of is a symptom of someone who doesn't know the Lord and won't be going to heaven. And he lists a whole bunch of sins. And in, one, uh, in that group is homosexual sin, the, the actual sin of, of, of acting out. And then he says at the end, and such were some of you. But you were washed you were cleansed, you were changed, you were justified by the Holy Spirit. In other words, there were gay people in Corinth that got saved and they left that life. They probably limped and struggled like we all struggle with all of our issues. But what I wanna leave you here with this morning is not to stumble here and hear and be offended. They are, the person needs Jesus, needs love, needs acceptance, needs healing. And we are their hope, right? But if we get all bent out of shape and all angry and narrow-minded and all hung up about something they already know, they know what we think about the behavior and they know what we think about the issue. Somehow, without compromising this, we gotta love on this person. We have to reach them with the gospel. We are, we are their hope. And after we're rolling our eyes when they walk in the restaurant, they're all happy and celebrating, and we're all, oh, look, you know, all of this. That's not good. That's not good. Let me tell you, I was on an airplane once. I was sandwiched between a couple people, and this woman, she was still being served alcohol. They should have stopped like four martinis ago, right? <laughs> And she's talking up a storm about me, about what I was wearing, and everybody's listening, and what I look like. And uh, I grew up with an alcoholic mother. She was pushing all my buttons, the breath, the insults, everything. I hated her. It was, get me out. I'll jump out of this plane. <laughs> I'll need a parachute. <laughs> and the Lord... I went up, I was walking around to get away from her. And the Lord's like, you're her last hope. You are the one, you have the ticket out for her. If you're offended and stumbled and rolling your eyes and hardening your heart, how is she ever, how am I going to reach her? And people like that. Now, it might not have been the best time to share the gospel with her, obviously. <laughs> but there could have been prayer. There could have been a kind attitude. There could have been a lot of things. Listen, folks, what is the gospel? <laughs> is it stop being gay? Is that the gospel? Because there are a lot of straight people who are perishing. 
All right, the gospel is not stop being gay, it's bad. That's not the gospel. It's the gospel, stop swearing. Oh, every time you swear, there's a lot of people don't use profanity that aren't going to be in heaven. That's not the gospel. Don't be distracted by the offensive behavior. Sinner's sin. That's their job description. (laughs) And we're all like so surprised, like, oh my, you're sinning. And then we're all stumbled by it. Oh, you need to stop sinning. Is that the gospel? No. Is the gospel, uh, same-sex marriage is wrong. Is that the gospel? No. It has nothing to do with the gospel. So we're not getting to the person because we're all wrapped up in the behavior and the issue and all of that. Without laying those truths aside, Jesus was able to be the friend of sinners. We have our whole lives had gay friends. We have gay family members on both sides. We have never had an issue with them. We have been kind and loving and inviting, and they've been in church and all of this. Our next-door neighbors in San Francisco, we had them over for Christmas. We shared, exchanged presents. I had a coworker. remember? Oh, she hated born-again Christians when I first started working with her. I used to say, I hate born-again Christians and bang her hand on the counter. Oh, I just, and she made life miserable. Then one day, I bought her a rainbow-colored beanie baby. <laughs> and I brought it in at staff. I've told you the story. And I, I, staff was starting. I shoved the beanie baby at her. And she went, oh, I've been looking for this guy for months. And then she looked up at me and, and went, oh. <laughs> and I looked at her and go, thank you. <laughs> we became like best friends. She wanted to read books that I suggested. Hey, check this book out. Oh, oh, because of some beanie baby worm. It was a worm, a little beanie baby rainbow worm. (laughs) I am not going to play the devil's game of getting distracted and angry and bitter and self-righteous. I am broken and sinful, and I was worse than any gay person in the world when I came to Christ. We're going to be loving. We're going to be open. We're going to be kind. We're going to be praying for you. And we're not going to be harping on it all day long. There are five things somebody said, wrote this real quick right here. Five things that Jesus would say to the gay community. I love this. It's just the gospel. I love you. I came to earth to die for you. I created you. I got a plan for your life, man. I understand rejection. I didn't fit in my own family. Thought I was crazy, right? We get the pain of growing up and not understanding why you feel the way you feel. It must be terrible to have to grow up like that and and, and not fit in and and feel all of that stuff and all kinds of sins against those people. Think about that. I was also tempted, Jesus would say, as we are. Oh my, we're we're all on our high horses about sexual purity and everybody in the room struggles. Jesus said, I was tempted. 
He can offer that solace to somebody who says, you don't know that. Oh, man, my whole life, that's all I'm thinking about, day and night. He says, yeah, I was tempted in every way that we were. I want more for you. This is the part that gets a little difficult. You know, the repent word would be in there. You need to turn. I've got something better. I know you love this life. I've got something better. You can't see it now. Trust me. I want you to be born again. I want you to live forever. I've got some good stuff for you. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And I'll be here for you. It takes a long time. You've got to be patient with people. Remember how long it kind of took you to digest some of the gospel? But in the meantime, Jesus says, I'm here for you. My church is here for you. Come on in. Hear the gospel. We'll love on you. And we'll lay our little snitty attitudes and our hurt feelings and all our resentment down. For what? For the sake of an eternal soul for whom Christ died. Do not separate your grief for the nation and your grief for something blasphemous that has happened. It is blasphemous, and it's terrible. But I'm not going to be suckered in by the devil to lose people and opportunities because I'm all wrapped up in this jargon and rhetoric and political discussions and all of that. When I see a gay person who doesn't know the Lord, it's the same as a straight person who doesn't know the Lord. There's a soul that will live forever and I have the opportunity by my actions and my words to be welcoming, loving, accommodating, not not telling them the truth, but how you do that, when you do that, when you're quiet, led by the Holy Spirit, then they come to you. Hey, there's a website called xgaytruth.com xgaytruth.com testimony 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 you click on them and they're telling their stories this is how it happened for me this is how i met jesus i don't have it all together but i'm walking with the lord this is the church this is the ministry i'm involved in click after click after click after click it's so refreshing and all of them saying a Christian loved me. A Christian treated me with kindness. A Christian was there for me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the timeliness of the scriptures. Who would have ever thought that that text would come at such a time as this? So, Lord, a lot to think about, a lot of wrangling in our hearts. May the Holy Spirit and truth prevail over our biases and our natural inclinations. May we be more like Christ, a friend of sinners, and shine your truth in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.